I'm going to begin with a quick introduction. Never trust a rabbi when they say quick introduction, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed some people. Shoshana and Michael and some others that are not on my screen. So if I, if I didn't mention your name, my apologies. Things are bouncing around. Okay. So I want to begin with an introduction. So there have been Jewish judges before. How do I know this? Because all you have to do is look at scripture, right? It's in the books. It's in scripture. itself. You look at scripture and we have none other than Devorah, Deborah, who was a prophet, who was a, pro who was a, a prophetess and a judge. She's one of the Shoftim. In fact, she was the fourth of the judges. The judges then weren't just judges in a legal sense. They were leaders of the people. And Devorah, Deborah was the fourth such leader of the Jewish people. After a just an incredible miracle and a victory that she led, there is a song, a shira that she wrote, which I love. It's Shiras Devorah. It's the song of Devorah, the song of Deborah. She, she composed a song, and it's, it's right there in scripture for us to, uh, to read. I want to quote for you an excerpt of, um, of the song, and I'll read it to you. She says, the rulers ceased in Israel, they ceased, until that I did arise, Deborah, that I did arise, a mother in Israel. So she says, leadership was gone until, until I, came, I came onto the scene. Deborah, and she, Devorah, she refers to herself as Aim B. Israel, a mother in Israel. And I think there's something so profound about that, that she has this role of leadership. She's a leader and a prophet. She's also a mom. And that doesn't get lost in the, in the shuffle. Maybe she meant the mother in Israel, a leader mother, but I choose, at least for the context of this conversation, to also understand it in a, in a literal sense. A mother in Israel uh, with her family, etc. So equally balancing the incredible responsibilities. My friends... Tonight, you and I are in for a real treat. We have with us someone who is an accomplished judge, a leader of leaders, someone who has done incredible things, which we are going to learn about tonight, including challenging some of the status quo in her own community to create things that are necessary, to create structures and organizations that fill a very important need in the community. She is a trailblazer. Um, I think I've also seen her say that she doesn't want to be called a trailblazer, which means that she's also humble. So in addition to all of the other virtues, she also has the virtue of humility. And uh, it's, it's really an honor to have Judge Ruchi Fryer here tonight with us. Judge Fryer has been called by the New York Times the Hasidic superwoman of night court. She was appointed, uh, she was elected, I'm sorry, she was elected as a, um, as a judge, as a civil, civil court judge uh, several years ago. She was then appointed to the criminal court, to, the, to be a judge in, in, in the criminal court system. And that's where she serves. She also leads a volunteer, all-female volunteer EMT ambulance service that is called Ezras Nashim. And she continues to shatter 
the the glass ceilings that one might have thought exist within certain communities often termed ultra orthodox um Hasidic communities ultra orthodox communities um and she continues to push to push those boundaries by way of introduction because hearing is one thing but seeing is something else i want to play about two minutes of a clip uh from an interview that judge fryer had with Megan Kelly on the, I believe it was the Today Show. So we're going to show a quick two-minute clip of the introduction there, which shows the judge in action. So please uh, bear with me while I get the uh, the clip ready to go. Then give me one second. Let me try this one more time. There we go. Cut your medicine back. No, no. Why not? A quick reminder, please. If you have your mic unmuted, please. Please, please. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Mike, no worries at all. All right, we're about to play the video. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Within living. I'm so sorry. This is the wrong video. Uh, okay, hold on, hold on. That is the wrong video. Let me try the video that we're looking to play. Here we go. series she's got faith today we meet rachel fryer who is challenging the norm when it comes to her very traditional religion being a woman of hasidic jewish faith typically means rejecting jobs outside of the home and yet judge rachel fryer is anything but typical watch rachel fryer has accomplished many firsts in her life at 52, the New York judge is, to her knowledge, the first Hasidic Jewish woman in U.S. history to hold public office. She says she didn't accomplish that feat in spite of her faith, but because of it. I happen to be a very religious person. It's my belief in and my faith that really gives me the strength. It gives me the backbone that I need. Friar married at age 19 and says she thought she'd be content to spend her life as a legal secretary. But a decade later, she wanted more. I decided to go to higher education when I was 30. At that point, I had been a legal secretary for many years, and I said, I just can't be a secretary my whole life. And I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. Because I don't want to be a grandmother in years from now, tell my grandchildren, well, Bobby could have done it. That's the Yiddish word for grandma. But she didn't. I had to try. After law school, Fryer worked in corporate law. In 2016, she ran for office and was elected a New York civil court judge. Soon after, she was assigned to criminal court, an area of law she says she loves. I like to think of myself as a trailblazer, laying down the path and the framework for other people to follow and do something similar. I never consider myself like a ceiling breaker because there's always another obstacle that's, that's, that's in front of me. Always something more to break. Even though Fryer works long hours, she still makes time for what's most important in her life, her faith, praying three times a day, and her family. A mother of six, she takes care to spend time with her children and her grandchildren, 
especially over the holidays. Fryer proudly embodies what it means to be a modern career woman, yet at the same time says she is very traditional when it comes to her faith. I believe that women are capable. I believe that women have abilities, can achieve a lot. But when it comes to my religion, I embrace the roles of the traditional Jewish woman. My role is being a mother, being there for my children, but it doesn't mean I can't be a professional. And at work, her faith is always nearby. I have the best seat in the house, because wherever I sit in this courthouse, above me are the words emblazoned and God we trust. And that always puts me into perspective. Whatever decision I make, there's a God above me. Friends, um, that was a beautiful, I think, a beautiful clip and a beautiful ending to that clip with, uh, with those words in God we trust. Without further ado, I'd like to warmly welcome and encourage everyone to put their hands together, although we're all muted, but put your hands together, please, for a warm welcome for Judge Ruchi Fryer. Please, Judge, take it away. Okay, can you all hear me now? Okay, great. So first of all, Rabbi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad to be in Atlanta, Georgia with your wonderful community. Um, I have to say that every time I meet more people from different communities, I'm always so amazed that while we may think that we're so different, I'm from Brooklyn, from the Hasidic community, we'll find by the time I finish speaking that there's more that binds us than what actually divides us. Now, I have to give a couple of disclaimers. Every time I speak, I need to let everybody know that I don't go in a chronological order. I kind of jump from topic to topic, from era to era. So you really have to pay attention. Also, because I'm, I'm a judge, I have to give a disclaimer that when I open the floor for questions, I cannot take any questions about any court cases or any politics here or any other, any other country. And um, other than that, um, my personal story and my life is is up for grabs. So ask me questions when I open the floor and it'll be my pleasure to answer it. So I'll try to give you first in a nutshell my background, but thank you Rabbi for playing that clip with Megan Kelly because that kind of answers, fills in a lot of gaps, answers lots of questions and kind of gives you a, bit, a good picture of my family background. So I grew up in the Hasidic community of Borough Park. I am the oldest of five children and I come from a wonderful, warm, loving, humble home. My parents weren't wealthy. They weren't in any political party. They weren't from any rabbinical dynasty, just amazing, hardworking parents. And um, I graduated high school when I was 17. And at that time, there were no college opportunities for the Hasidic community. Now, one thing you have to know about Hasidim is that we're nonconformists. We just, we're just kind of stubborn in the things that we do. But when opportunities change, we're there. And when colleges opened up that catered to the Hasidic community, which means there were separate classes for men and women, there was no homework over the Shabbos, there was no classes during the holidays, we were there. At that point, I was already 30, I already had three children, and I was gonna do it slowly because my goal always was not to compromise my values. I didn't want my children to suffer, I didn't want my husband to suffer, I wanted to be able to accomplish both. Just again, the timeline, by the time I was 36, that was when I finished my undergrad. And then when I was turned 36, I applied to law school. I joined Brooklyn Law School's part-time program and I graduated law school, I was 40. 
And in order to run for a judge or be a judge, you have to be admitted to the bar at least 10 years. So if you can figure out how old I am, it's perfectly fine. Now, people will always ask me, like, how'd you get to where you are? And that's really a story of trying to cram in 30 years and 30 minutes, but I'll, I'll do my best. And I will tell you that I'm blessed with six children, three boys and three girls, just like the Brady Bunch. The girls are all blonde, but one husband. And um, my mother, who is still my best friend, always taught us when we were growing up, she said, girls, you could do anything you want to do, so long as it isn't illegal, immoral, or against the Torah. So even though I was growing up in an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic home, I knew that I had lots of opportunity. I never felt like I was stifled. I never felt like, oh gosh, there's things that I want to do that I can't do. I felt that there were rules, there was the Torah's guiding principles, but that was just to help us navigate. And I never felt like I was stifled. My father, he was an, he's just an incredible father because he always made us feel like we were wonderful, that we were great. In, in fact, when my father came for PTA, the only thing that concerned my father was our character, our midos. He would ask the teacher, how did my daughter behave? What, what my grades were, were not so important to my parents. So if you think that I was pushed to succeed, to succeed, to succeed academically, you're making a big mistake. I wasn't pushed, and I was just I was just shown by my parents that if you want to do something, you have to work hard. But I was a very average student. Don't think I was the class valedictorian because I wasn't. In fact, when when my youngest my youngest are a set of twin girls, they now just turned 23, and um, by the t when they were in their senior year in high school, I went to the PTA. And I walked into the classroom and the teacher says to me, hey, Ruchi, I recognize you. I was in your sister Simi's class. So I look at her and I say, yeah, you look familiar. So she tells me, did you become a lawyer? At that point, I was still in private practice. So I said, yeah, I did. And she says, you know, come to think of it, she says, I don't remember you being one of the smart girls. And she was absolutely right because I was just an average girl. But, you know, my father was once in Manhattan at work. And he was at the newsstand and he stops and he calls me, Ruchi, he says, I saw a magazine down the front cover. It said the top 50 lawyers in the country. So I bought it. I didn't see your name inside. And that was how I was raised. I was raised with incredible, incredible, encouraging set of parents. You know, I grew up in the 1970s. And during that era, kids were valued because we were kids. It's very different today. Today we push our kids, we want them to excel, accelerated programs, everything that we can cram into them. But back then, it was very different. You see, I am the oldest grandchild of Holocaust survivors. So when my generation was born, we proved that Hitler, may his name be obliterated, was wrong. Because not only are there Holocaust survivors and children, but now there are grandchildren. I'm Yisrael Chayvekayam. The Jewish nation is eternal. So when we went to school, all we had to do was breathe. You inhaled oxygen, exhaled carbon dioxide, and the teachers called you Heirkind. In Yiddish, that's translated as dear child. Don't know how many of you speak Yiddish, but if I ever say any words in Yiddish or Hebrew, I will translate it. And if I forget, Rabbi, please stop me. 
But let me tell you really what my message is and, and what I want people to walk away with after I, I, I make a little speaking engagement here. My main theme is that while we're all different, we all have our values. We all have our standards. And whatever standards you have in Judaism, whatever connects you to God, don't think for one moment that you have to compromise those values to be successful in the secular world, because you don't. My experience has taught me just the opposite, that if you show people that you have values and that they're uncompromising, not only will they respect you, because people want people to look up to. People want to know that there are people who have values that maybe they can't aspire to, or they can't keep, but they want to aspire to. So when they see that you have these values, they won't let you let go. And when I go to speak to high school, you know, high school students and they're before graduation or college students, I say to them, you're going to go out into the wide world and you're going to be confronted with challenges. But if you, if you succeed and to stick to your values, the message you are giving to your colleagues and your supervisors and your coworkers is that you're a person of loyalty, honesty, integrity, that when no one is looking, you're only eating your kosher food. When no one is watching, you're going to go do, go home and make sure to be home in time to light the Shabbos candles. Now, I have a number of nice stories to share with you. But I think I'm going to hold off with sharing the stories because my stories can, I can go on all night sharing stories. I think I'll open the floor for questions and then maybe some of the stories will come up and then I'll speak a little bit more. But one story I will share with you is the story behind the Megyn Kelly interview. So when I had become a judge and how I went, how I ran for public office and what prompted me is a few pages down in my presentation. But when I did win the election and become the judge, I was unprepared for the amounts of publicity and the requests to speak. The news, the media, they all wanted to hear my story. And at one point I said to my, to my, to my husband and my children, I said, you know, it's enough already. It's just too many interviews, too much time. I, I'm not gonna do it anymore. I have to focus on learning how to be a judge. So I come home one day and I tell my husband and my kids, some, someone, Megan Kelly, emailed me. At that time, she had the Today Show. Now, we grew up without TV, without going to the movies, so I had no idea who she was. One of my kids says, she did the, the presidential debates. This goes back, you know, the prior president. Ma, you should check her out. Maybe it's worth doing that interview. So I went online, I Googled her name, and what I saw was that even if you're doing a talk show, you have to look like a model, dress like a model. And I thought to myself, if I'm gonna do an interview and I'm gonna be next to this woman just dressed glamorously according to secular standards, I was a little concerned because when I had started as Rasnashim a couple of years earlier, I was interviewed by Fox News and they sent a reporter to come interview me and it was in the middle of the summer, the blazing hot summer, and they came to my house in Borough Park to interview me. And I didn't prepare the reporter on what she should wear. And she came dressed like your average American woman dresses in the summer with a red dress, which in Borough Park, we would call it a long shirt, but it was a red dress. And anytime I get interviewed, it somehow goes viral among our Hasidic community. 
And I felt like I was the cause of so many people looking at what they shouldn't be looking at because you know our, we have our modesty standards. And I felt like I was bringing an immodest standard into everybody's home. And I felt that if I'm gonna do another interview, I have to prepare myself and prepare the, the host. So when they, when they contacted me, they wanted everything. They wanted to interview me in my house, in my chambers, in the courtroom. I said, you wanna to come to my house? You're gonna to come to my house on a Friday, on the era of Shabbos, Hanukkah time, when it's the shorter Shabbos and the house is crazy and I'm rushing to light the Shabbos candles and my husband is rushing to light the menorah. And if we have time, you'll have a piece of my potato kugel. And then the producer came to my courtroom and she interviewed me in court. And then I pulled her aside and I said, Mary, I have a, a request to ask of you. I said, I'm concerned that this video that's gonna be done, it's gonna go viral. And I feel very responsible that if a video goes viral among the Hasidic community, and people are dressed, uh, you know, and she didn't even wait for me to finish my sentence. She says to me, Rachel, do you want me to ask Megan to dress conservatively? And I said, Mary, I would so much appreciate that. Well, the big day comes and I was gonna be picked up by limousine around six o'clock in the morning to take me, my mother came along, some of my kids came along to Rockefeller Center. And it was like going to the White House. Security was there and then they take us to different rooms they wanted to have somebody do my makeup. I said, my makeup, you can have someone do, but only a woman, you can't have a, ma a male makeup artist. They wanted to have someone do my hair. I said, well, I wear a wig and my mom styles my wigs and she's gonna come along. So she'll do my wig for me. Oh, that's great. They said, we always wanna learn how to do wigs. And then they put me, maybe it was the yellow room. I said, okay, Rachel, you sit here and your family will go into the studio and they're gonna watch the people that are interviewed before you. And when it's your turn, you are gonna come in. And I'm sitting in that green room and I'm watching the video screen and I'm watching Megan Kelly interview the people that were on before me. And out she comes dressed like she always dressed. Dresses that we would call too short, things that we would say not appropriate for our community. And I said, dear God, I did mine, I tried, please forgive me, what more can I do? And the second interview happens, then they call me. They open up the door, they announce my name, and there is Megan dressed in a long sleeve turtleneck and a navy blue skirt, just like we wore when I was in Beisjako school. So I learned that when you ask people to respect what your standards are, you, will not, you don't even know the amount of respect that you will get from people who understand that you have values and you have standards. I was very fortunate. I went to a great school. I had teachers who encouraged us to ask questions. And I was always the one to ask questions. And when I graduated high school, I knew exactly what was expected of me. I wanted to marry a, a Talmudic scholar. And I was fortunate to marry a wonderful man. And I, I forget already how many years we're married. I mean, I, I, when I, once, my, once my children turned 30, I, I lost count already. So all I can say is that we've been very blessed all these years and people make a big deal about me being a trailblazer, but really it's my husband who gets the credit because while I may be the first Hasidic woman who ran for public office, my husband is the first Hasid who supported his wife to run for public office. He ran to rabbis all around town to get their endorsement. I maxed out all of his credit cards for my campaign. 
And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here today speaking to all of you. So Rabbi, how about if we take a break for a few moments and see if anybody has any questions. And then after a couple of questions, I'll go back to finish my story. I love that. That's a great idea. All right. So let's, um, you know what, if you have questions, you can, oh, you can keep on, put, you can put it, put it in the chat and we'll, I'll, I'll monitor that. Um, Donna, Donna, jump in with a question. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Very fascinating. Um, so my question is, you mentioned that you're able to go to college at the time where there was, uh, where they provided separate uh, accommodations for men and women. So I'm wondering if you're able to achieve that in the chamber setting, in the court setting, because I know there's a lot of male judges. And then uh, a, a, a similar uh, related question is, so, you know, the Americans general secular view on, on gender equality requires, you know, different things. So I'm wondering if there's conflict sometimes in, in the cases that you have to judge where your, you know, Hasidic and Jewish values conflict with the American laws you are, you know, of course have to uphold. So I was wondering how that's resolved. That's a great question. So there, there are no restrictions in my sitting in a room with men or working with men whatsoever. The, the point of having separate classes in college is because college is like a transition. You go to school, you go to girls' school, you're in elementary school, you're in high school, you're in post-high school seminary program. And then when you start going into secular education, like higher academic education, it was important at that point to have that opportunity. But once I went to law school, it was a complete, it was a complete secular environment. And I had already been working as a legal secretary for many years before I went to college. So I'm very comfortable in the setting of working among men. I have my rules though. I, I have my rules where there's no physical contact with myself and an unrelated man to me. So I don't socially shake hands with men. And I have a great story about my, my handshaking story with a at a closing that I had. So I have great stories of how I have to navigate myself through it. But there, there's no contradiction for my working with men. There are rules. And, I'm, and, I, and I stick to those rules. I have a great story about the, the rules of seclusion. The rules of yichud is called in Hebrew. So you won't find me alone in a room with a man and the door locked. And you know, as I grew up, I realized that all these rules that we learn when we're young, young religious girls growing up, and we think that these rules are such a pain in the neck sometimes, but those rules were promulgated thousands of years ago by the rabbis and they really were brilliant because some people today really get stuck and had they been following our rules, they would really have been protected so I find that all these rules that I follow, they really were my safeguard. They really protected me and enabled me to continue achieving higher and higher because I didn't have to, I didn't fall into all these traps that other people fall into. So as you can see by my story, I, I do interact with all different people. I, I try my best to explain why I have my restrictions. If I go to, if I go out to a, a gathering that I have my kosher food. We recently had a judges, a judges convention and everybody's eating their food and I have my food, but 
double wrapped and triple wrapped and I have to explain to everybody. But I think by and large, when you share your, your life and you share your rules, people are, are interested. And if you open yourself up to questions, you really break barriers. So my, my life experience has been that I've made lots of friends and I've shared the Hasidic life with many people. And uh, uh, Judge, um, the second question was, how do you navigate conflicts in, and, and Donna, you can thumbs up if I got this correct. How do you co- navigate conflicts between kind of a secular law sensibilities and Jewish sensibilities? How, how does that, how does, uh, how do you walk that line? You know, a, a case comes up and, you know, Judaism might have one take, but New York law has a bit of a different take. How do you navigate that? So I am a judge in, in civil court. It's a New York state court. We follow New York state law. It's a secular court. And that's where I was elected. I don't sit on a tribunal of, of a based in. I don't, I don't um, judge any halakha questions. So there's an expression in the Talmud, Dina de Dina, the law of the land is the law of the land that we have to follow. If there ever is a case where I have a conflict and that has come up where someone is related to me, I cannot sit on the bench on that case. We do what's called, we recuse ourselves. So every judge comes to the bench with their own background, with their own beliefs, their own values. And if there ever is a case that we feel that we cannot cannot take that case, we recuse ourselves. And I've handled cases from my colleagues and they've handled cases from me. Thank you. Sure. All right, perfect. Um, A question that I just saw pop up a few moments ago, which I thought was an interesting question regarding values, Jewish values and, and, and and, and your role, your job. Are you able to set your own hours? How do you navigate with uh, Jewish holidays, Shabbat coming in sometimes very early on a Friday? Are you able to make your own hours? How does that, how does that work? So that, that was much harder for me when I was a legal secretary. I had to keep track of my hours and make up every hour. Um, as a judge, I am very fortunate. I have religious accommodations and I don't have to work on Jewish holidays. So it's, it's, thank God, it's, it's a wonderful job. And I'm very much appreciative of, of the fact that all of my holidays are accommodated. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about my, um, what it was like for me running for civil court judge and, and, and how I navigated that and what propelled me and all the challenges that I had. And I also want to talk about Ezra Nashim. So let's not forget that rabbi, okay? Perfect, yeah. Yeah, so that, I think that's that's perfect. So let's just let's just run into that. We'll take more questions soon. We'll we'll split this up in a in a few different parts of, of, of taking questions. But yeah, you know, if you could speak about um, what I think would be good just to kind of fill in the background information. When what 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 was the year that you started? How did the whole idea, I guess, of running for this position? How did it evolve? And then how did that come about? What was that process of campaigning like? And I guess just kind of walk us through that story. So since I was a little girl, I think it's part of my DNA is advocacy and, and just lawyering. I think I was a lawyer for the, for the family before I even graduated elementary school. And um, when, I did, when, I did get into, um, when I did get into law school, I, um, I made a deal with God and I said, dear God, 
this is going to be a real secular academic environment for me. And please help me get through law school without compromising my values. Because everybody warned me that I was going to, I won't stay as committed to Hasidism as I, as I was. And, and my story is filled really with naysayers. Every step of the way, there were naysayers who said it could never happen. It could never happen. And I always would say, like, how do you know? Like, why would you say it could never happen? Like, do you have a crystal ball? Or do you, do you pray with a different sitter or a different prayer book than I use? Like, if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. So I, I, I made my deal with God. God, dear God, please help me get through law school without compromising my values. And then when your children come to me for help, I will help them. And God wasted no time in testing me. Shortly after I graduated law school, I formed an organization to help youth at risk, primarily Hasidic boys in our community. And then a couple of years later, I was approached by a group of women who wanted to volunteer to serve other women in the Hasidic community. And they were foreclosed from joining the only volunteer EMS agency that caters to the Hasidic community because that was comprised of only men. And that's how I started as Rasnashim. But at the same time that I was practicing law, my uncle of blessed memory was my mentor. And I always told him I would love to be a judge like you because he was, he was a judge when um, I was going through, through my education. When my aunt, my mother's sister married him, I was a little girl. And I watched him go through law school. I watched him become a court attorney. And then I watched him actually become a judge. So one day he calls me up and he says to me, Ruchi, do you, if you still want to be a judge, I'll be retiring soon. And when I retire, my original seat in civil court's going to open because my uncle was elevated to state Supreme Court. And he says, your only chance really of becoming a judge is by running for this particular seat, because any other seat, which is countywide, you wouldn't even have a chance. And um, I did all the appropriate things. I went to local politicians, asked them for their support, and nobody wanted to support me. The party leader said to me, we really like you, Rachel, but we heard that a Hasidic woman can never win in Borough Park. And I looked the party leader in the eye and I said, if God wants me to win, I am going to win. And that's how my campaign started. It was my husband and my kids. You think I ran for public office? They ran for public office. They didn't leave a stone unturned. They went to, my husband went to rabbis, got, got their endorsements of, of, for me to be a judge. And then my kids, they bought their friends and my dining room was like the war room. They, they took my palm cards. Mommy, we're going to translate this into Yiddish. You should have seen my kids. I mean, you have to envision this. My sons are Hasidic with the full garb, the full nine yards, the long side curls, the black felt hats, the long black coats. And they're in the streets there with my palm cards. Vote for Friar. This is my mama. Vote for Friar. It's my mother. People would stop and say, your mom? Who is she? Like, what's wrong? And... Um, my kids said, Ma, we're going to put these cards where, where the men, where, in every single synagogue in Borough Park, in Bubbuth and Satma, Pupa, Bells, you get the drift. Mommy, we're going to put it where the men read in the bathrooms. They hung, and by the way, I conformed to every single rule of modesty. The posters that were displayed in Borough Park did not have my picture on it. It just said Rachel Fryer. 
I didn't shake hands with men. And by the way, my, I had an opponent because the people who opposed my SRS Nashim organization didn't want me to win. So they actually had an Orthodox man put up to run against me. So there I was, a Hasidic woman, running against an Orthodox man with a beard, mind you. And if you think that the people in my Hasidic community are narrow-minded, you have a big surprise because they voted for me. I won the election. So it was really an amazing story to see how the community really came and the women came out to vote and the men came out to vote. It was, for, for me, it was an, an incredible experience and it was an experience for the entire family. And um, I, I've learned so much about believing that God runs the world. And if you want something to happen, you have to believe in the power that God gave each of us. We know that we're created in the image of God, the Tselem Elohim. And if we just know the, the abilities that we have and we just tap into that, we can accomplish so much. Now, I have a couple of stories to share with you of what it was like for me to stick to my values, to stick to the things that sometimes may be unusual or strange to an outsider. So let me share with you one of my mincha stories. So mincha is the afternoon prayer. So I try to pray three times a day, shachras, the morning prayer, mincha, the afternoon prayer, and of the evening prayer. Now, Shachris, the morning, it's not a problem. I do it when I have the time in the morning. And Myriv, the evening one, I usually do it like around midnight time. The tricky one is the Mincha prayer because that has to be said before the sun sets. And in the winter time, that becomes very tricky if you're at work or if you're in law school because you want to find a private place to pray. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not embarrassed to pray. If you catch me on a plane or on a train, you'll see me with my sitter. Or right now we have our apps on the phone. You'll see me praying and I'm not, I'm not embarrassed at all. But when I got to law school, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to go to the law school library, first year law student. And I'm going to be standing there with my sitter. And I'm going to be, people, people may look at me and think I'm strange. I have to figure out where I'm going to pray. And I felt, I felt that I needed to pray, make sure I pray, because I wanted to make sure that I stay connected to Hashem, to God, during my years in law school. I did one other thing when I was in law school. I got very involved in outreach. I figured that I wanted to let everybody know that I'm a Hasidic woman and share whoever, whichever student wants to learn about the Jewish holidays. I'm going to be there to do my own little outreach, and that will protect me and help me get through law school. So I would, every before every Jewish holiday, I would bring in my kids, bring in the props. For Hanukkah, we made latkes. For Purim, I made a masquerade. For Passover, I made, I made a Seder table. And I always had the Jewish professors, religious or not, you're Jewish, you get up and you speak how you celebrated Passover growing up. And there were great programs. We really had a good time. And then when it came to praying, I asked one of the older students who was religious, said to her, April, please tell me where was a good place I could pray mincha, I could daven mincha. And she told me that in Brooklyn Law School is a staircase behind the cafeteria. And behind that staircase was another staircase. And no one uses that staircase. She says, Ruchi, if you daven over there, nobody will see you. 
So four years in law school, I dove in Mincha behind the cafeteria and the staircase, and I did my, my outreach holidays. It was close to graduation, and I wanted to thank the security guards because they were always so helpful when I did my holiday programs. So I go over to and the two amazing African-American security guards, so friendly, and I say, Clyde, I can't believe it. Four years went by so fast. I'm going to miss you guys. You were always so nice. I came with my props. You opened up the back entrance for me. You helped schlep my props. You kept the lights open for me. You guys were so nice. I'm really going to miss you. Says to me, Rachel, we're going to miss you also with your, with your little book. We're, what? Yeah, Rachel, he said, we're going to miss you with, with your prayer book. I said, what are you talking about? So he points to the security camera and he says, we used to watch you every day pray on the security camera. I had no idea for four years that that staircase behind the staircase was a fire exit and the security camera was facing me head on as I prayed. So here I was thinking I'm doing something so private, nobody sees. But you know that, that famous adage that we learned, CBC Hashem Lenegzi Summit, King David writes, keep God in front of you wherever you go, wherever you go, the God is with you. I had no idea those security guards were watching me pray Mincha every day for four years. And what I learned is that sometimes you think something should be done privately. Maybe God wants others to see. Maybe God is proud and wants other people to learn and share from what you're doing for his honor. So whatever little thing you do for the sake of God, be proud of it. Be proud and don't let go. Don't be embarrassed because people are going to be proud of you. And they're going to ask you questions if you let them and answer them. And if you don't really answer, you have a rabbi. Say, that's a great question. I'll ask my rabbi and I'll get back to you. So I'm, I'm going to also talk a little bit about Ezra Snushin, and then we'll open the floor for questions again. So we're going to rewind a little bit now, and we're going to talk about my deal with God. If I get through law school, I'm going to help his children that come to me for help. So when the boys came to me that needed help because they were being kicked out of schools, I actually went and helped them, helped yeshivas open up for them, and I took care of them. And then when Esra Snushim came around, I went and I took care of, of these women. And I, when, they, when they, they called me up one night and they said, Ruhi, we're having a meeting. And we're a group of EMTs and labor coaches. And we really want to help women in, in, in Borough Park. And we, we can't join Hatzala. Hatzala is an amazing organization, thousands of volunteers, and they save thousands of lives every year. But they have one rule that bothered me and they don't let women join. But then when I realized that maybe God wants women to have our own organization, maybe that's, that's what God wants. And let me tell you what happened. My opponents, they went out and they lambasted me. And they said, this is Rachel Fryer's radical feminist agenda. This is all about Rachel Fryer and her push for women's rights. And I said, women's rights? I'm doing this for modesty, not women's rights. I mean, it happens to be that most of the time women are right, but this is not about our rights, it's about our modesty. 
And then a couple of years later, when I was working harder and harder and we were pushing our way through and we were, we were conquering territory, we got our license, I was approached by a very young modern Orthodox filmmaker, said to me, Ruchi, your story is so amazing. There's such a negative view of Hasidic people in the outside world, especially about women. If you would let me film your work at Ezra Snashim, it would make a great documentary. Now, at that point, it was 2013. It was way before we, are, we were what we are today. It was still a dream. And I said to her, I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if it's allowed. I don't even know. I'm Forget it. I'm not interested. I do too much as it's just too big of a risk for my family. Well, Ruchi, she said, you'll be able to break that stereotype. I said, I, I know, but I, I'm not going to take that risk. But Ruchi, if you'll let me film this, it'll be a Kiddush Hashem. You'll sanctify God's name. I said, Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name. That's my soft spot. Let me go speak to my rabbi. So I went to the rabbi in Barapak a very devout Hasidic rabbi, I went with the filmmaker and we told him what we wanted to do. And he said, if you could make a Kiddush Hashem, absolutely go ahead. So that's how the documentary film 93 Queen came to be. It was the filmmaker following us for five years as we trailblazed through starting this organization. I became an EMT. Now, let me tell you something. I had to become an EMT because I had to become a director by default, not because I wanted to. I had no choice. I took my mother with me. I said, Ma, you have to come with me because if we don't do this together, it's never going to work out. So my mother, who was my best friend, she did it with me. By the way, this was the second time I took a course with my mother. The first course we took together was Lamaze because my oldest son and my, my youngest brother, they were born six weeks apart. So my mother and I, we took the Lamas course together, and then we took the EMT course together. And the rest of Ezra Snashim is history. We had, God sent us amazing people who helped us along the way, how we were able to navigate through all this. And now there is an ambulance park outside my house. It's beautiful. It's purple and pink and white. And emblazoned on there are the words Ezra Snashim. And that's because we believe in modesty. We believe that modesty in women is not just when everything is okay, even when you're having an emergency. You want to have your modesty and your dignity, you're entitled to it. Now, there is an expression in Yiddish, and I'll say Yiddish, I'll translate it. When you do a mitzvah, you think you're helping somebody else. But one day you're going to find out that you really helped yourself. Now, how, how did I find that out? When I was elected for civil court judge, I found out two weeks before my term started that I'm going to be assigned to criminal court. And I told the supervisor, you're making a mistake. I don't know the first thing about crime. You see, I never even watched movies. So I don't know anything about criminal law. Criminal law was my hardest subject in law school. Don't worry, judge. We're going to teach you in judge school. So judge school was three days before, before I sat on the bench. Let me tell you something. When I sat in criminal court and these young defendants came in front of me and they were mostly from the poor communities and they, would, they, were, they were like repeat offenders. They would come time and time again. I looked them in the eye and you know what I saw? I saw the same pain in their eyes as the young kids at risk that I counseled in my youth at risk program. I saw the same pain. 
And I realized that if you're a kid at risk in the Hasidic community or in any other community, any other insular community or, or wherever you are, you're still the same. And the same way I spoke to these kids at risk, I would speak to these young defendants. I even had grown men cry in my courtroom. I told them, you have to believe in yourself. Yes, I see you were arrested many times. And yes, I see you have a very hard past, but you can change the past, but you can change the future. Roll up your sleeves and work hard. And one man would cry and he said to me, Your Honor, no one ever said these things to me before. But then, then what the prosecutor would say, but Your Honor, what about the victim? What about the injuries? And I would say, I'm a paramedic. Show me those photos. I want to see those injuries. So there you have it. Those first two years that I was on the bench, I thought I would know nothing. My volunteer work, counseling kids at risk, and starting an EMT agency is what helped me get through those two years. I remember once I had an arraignment and both attorneys were arguing with each other. And one tells the other, stop interrupting me. She can't hear us both at the same time. I said, counselors, I raised six kids. I could hear you both at the same time. And truthfully, being a mother is the best experience you have. You're judging every day. You're juggling things every day. You have to do so many things at once. If you could be a good Jewish mother, you could succeed anything else you want to do. So I'd, li I'd like to end off, before I open up the floor for questions again, with a beautiful little story of one of the early, early Hasidic rabbis, Rabbi Zisha, Zisha of Anapol. He, you know, the first Hasidic leader was the Baal Shem Tov. And then you had his disciples, and Reb Zisha was like one of those early disciples. And he lived in the 18th century in, in Russia. Big, big holy man. And on his deathbed, he's crying. And his students say, Rebbe, why are you crying? You're such a holy man. You're going to go straight to Gan Eden. You're going to go straight to paradise. Why is the rabbi crying? And he says, I'm not crying because up in heaven, they're going to ask me, Zisha, why weren't you like Moses? And I'm not crying because they're going to ask me, Zisha, why weren't you like King David? I'm crying because they're going to ask me, Zisha, why weren't you like Zisha could have been? We don't know our potential. We don't know what we're capable of accomplishing. People will tell us, you can't do it with a whole host of reasons why we can't do something, whether we're not smart enough, rich enough, young enough, whatever excuses the naysayers will give you, don't believe them. Whatever you want to accomplish, hang on to your values, hang on to what connects you to God and go for it. Because if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen and you can be successful. Any more questions? I'd love to hear them. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes. Um, so thank you for sharing um, those, the, the background and the stories and filling in some details. Um, a, qu a few questions came up that I want to, I want to mention that relates to what you just said. Um, so with both with your campaign uh, to be elected judge, as well as the, um, the all female EMT volunteer ambulance service as the Ezra's Nashim, um, it seems like there were 
there was some opposition and maybe not just some, but maybe a lot of opposition. It sounds like a lot of it was coming with regards to the, to the ambulance service where there was some pushback about, you know, against the women starting their own thing. So my question is, you know, if you could speak a little bit to that, not, not to get into like, you know, community politics, but more as um, to kind of frame, frame the, frame the struggle, if you will, and, and, and what kept you going when there was that opposition? And do you think that that has kind of, you know, changed a, a way of thinking within the community? If you could speak about that dynamic a little bit. Okay. So the opposition, what I've learned over time, was really coming from the leadership and not from the community at large. It was just a few people who had a disproportionate amount of power and influence in the community. What gave me the encouragement and the strength to battle this, this opposition is the rabbi that I went to speak with, the same one who told me that it was okay to be a judge. He always gives me chizok, you know, encouragement. And he says to me once, you know, when God blessed Abraham, God's blessing was those that bless you, I will bless. And those that curse you, I will curse. So that begs the question, is that the best blessing God could give Abraham? Couldn't God just say, Abraham, you'll be blessed by everyone. And the answer is that when you're in the public eye, you're going to have opposition. So Abraham had opposition. Moses had opposition. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, he had opposition. So if all these great people had opposition, who was Rochi Fryer? I mean, seriously, sorry, let me just turn off my radio. So opposition is something that we just have to expect. Is it easy? No, of course not. Are there nights that I twist and turn and say, I don't know how I'm going to wake up tomorrow and face the day tomorrow? Of course, of course. But that's the way God wants the world to run, and that's the way it's going to be. And I also believed in what I'm doing. I believe that it's the right thing. And we also know that when you want to do something that's good, you have to know it's going to be hard. It's never easy doing the right thing. There, there is a, a, a famous saying that, you know, based on the pain is the reward. The harder you work towards something, the greater is the, is the, is the reward. So it's just knowing that it's the right thing. I have to take a stand for it. And I'm not going to buckle under. And I need to tell you that challenges confront me all the time, sometimes from without, sometimes from within. And it's, it's never easy. But if you believe that God runs the world, you have to just stay focused on that. That's helpful. And, and just the, if I can edit, editorialize just a drop, I mean, I think in a community in which... Um, and I grew up in a similar style community, a Chabad community in Pittsburgh, but a Hasidic community that does teach the value of modesty and does have, to some extent, the segregation of genders. To have, a, um, to have an option for medical care that respects those religious values makes the most sense. In other words, it makes the most sense what you've created, what you're doing. That makes the most logical sense religiously, spiritually, from a modesty perspective, I, I'm, I, I'm 
just personally, I'm just speaking, you know, personally, not on behalf of any, uh, you know, official question. I'm a little bit baffled by the opposition, other than saying it must have been about power or some sort of um, desire to hold on to something and not and, and not allow that to be shared. Um, but I think uh, I think what you've created is uh, is is necessary and, and incredibly important. Um, question that um, that came up um, privately is. How do you feel, you mentioned this in passing, but what is your sense about the portrayal um, that Hasidic Jews and specifically Hasidic women have in the media? It seems like every few months there's another Netflix or whatever it is about uh, Orthodox, unorthodox, ultra-Orthodox, Hasidic. Um, everyone loves Shtisel, I guess. That's a safe, uh, that's a safe topic. That's always, always gets a smile from everybody, but how do you feel in general about the about the portrayal? And um, do you feel that what you've done has uh, in some way maybe changed the narrative a bit? So I hope so. I hope that people who reach out to me and ask me, is it true? I could say, no, it's not true. I think that, you know, the media just sometimes tries to portray what's going to just bring in money and bring in viewers. Whenever I have a chance and I'm interviewed or discuss it, I will say I'm absolutely, I disagree with it. So a lot of times they're just wrong on the facts, wrong on the story. You cannot believe what you see in the media. Absolutely not. They, the, the portrayal of women as second-class citizens is wrong. And I always say, you know, the biggest proof that I can give in terms of Judaism's view of women, women are the ones that determine someone's Jewish identity. So if your mother is a Jew, according to Jewish law, so are you. And your father could be the greatest person around. Um, but if your mother is not Jewish, you're not going to be considered a Jew. And I think that God gave us women an incredible, incredible role. He entrusted us to carry on Judaism from one generation to the next. That's a huge responsibility. And I think that just says it all. So whatever else they're going to go around saying about Judaism's view of women, I will be the first one to get up and say, we are not second-class citizens. We're very content. And you can be devout and religious and have, a, and have a profession as well. I don't like to use the word career because that kind of puts family on the back burner. I say profession. You could be a professional and you can have a life outside the home. Absolutely. So I, Netflix is just, listen, they, they want to do what they want to do. And if you want to hear the truth, you want to hear about my life, Come visit me in Borough Park, and um, I'm both glad to share it. Beautiful. Um, a question just came in um, from Yaakov. Um, Yaakov's dad was a Louisiana State Court of Appeals judge. His favorite quote from the Torah is Tzedek Tzedek Tirdov, which part of Judaism resonates the most and influences you the most? whether it's a, a pasuk, a verse, or whether it's a teaching, an ethical ideal, what, what of Judaism influences you in your work that's uh, not about Jewish law per se, but what influences you? Well, that's a fantastic question. What, what influences me? Um, I, I find that every morning at the end of the Shachos prayer, we say that the animamins written by the Rambam, which are the 13 principles of faith, I find, I find those so profound. I, I find that reading everyone, especially, you know, just to say that 
God knows everything. God sees everything. Everything is determined by God. And I think that's a great way to start the day. It's just like just praying. So I guess to me, what I, I find very important in Judaism is prayer. The ability for every person to connect with God. You can pick up your sitter. You can pray in any language you want. Um, before COVID, I used to go on my special prayer trips every year. I look forward to go once again going, but I would go every year. In, in, in the spring, I would go to, um, to Lezhensk, Poland, and I would pray at the gravesite of Rabbi Eli Melech of Lezhensk. We believe that on the yard site, on the anniversary of the death of a, of, of a, of a person, it's an auspicious time for prayer. And Hasidim like doing things in groups, so we go together, and it's usually a big crowd. And then in, in usually around May time, I go to Hungary. I go to Karastir, which is where my mother was born. And my and her mother was born there, and I go to pray at the gravesite of Reb Shaila of Karastir. And then in in the in the summertime, I go to Miron. We had a very big tragedy there last year, but and I wasn't there for two years in a row. But I look forward to once again going there and being part of the celebration and, and praying at the gravesite of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So prayer to me is it's it's fascinating. It's accessible. Anyone can do it. And um, the rewards are amazing. Beautiful. Um, okay, let's see. Perhaps one more question. Are we are we okay with one more question? Yes. Yeah. And okay. Rabbi, you can share my my personal email address if anybody has a question that's sensitive and and doesn't want to ask it publicly or if there's no time. Time is running short. You can email me. It's ruchifryer at gmail.com. If you just go ruchi and fryer, you'll get me. Um, and by the way, I should I should mention, and I say this, of course, tongue in cheek, that given uh, Judge Fryer's responsibility as a judge, as uh, the director of this uh, ambulance, this this volunteer ambulance, uh, all female um, ambulance service, um, as a mom and as a grandmother as well, I'm sure she has so much time to answer email. I'm just like I'm, I'm just amazed. Again, I'm all tongue. I'm amazed that you are. Um, you know, just so open to these conversations and, and, and connections. Um, let's, I'm um, just looking through the chat. Oh, what, what type of Hasidus are you? What, what is your, um, your Hasidic uh, uh, affiliation? Yes. So um, my husband, he, he davens in the Baba Vishul, that's B-O-B-O-V. But we like to go to many different synagogues and different rabbis and, and, you know, so we're, we, we, we call ourselves like neutral and open, but my husband goes most often to the Baba Vishul. Got it. Okay. Um, a question came in. Did you have a chance to ever meet Ruth Bader Ginsburg by any chance? No, no. I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I read a book about her and, and I, you know, heard so much about her. Um, I found it amazing that after she went to law school, the only job she can get was a job as a legal secretary. So she definitely was a, a trailblazer for women. People always ask me if she's my role model, and I say no. Um, who my, who's my role model? They ask me, is it Golda Meir or, or RBG? And I say no, my role model is a woman who lived between the two world wars in Poland. Her name was Sarah Shanira, and she was the founder of the Base Yaakov movement. She was the woman who said that Jewish girls should have a Jewish education, and she was a revolutionary. And I had teachers who were her students. So she was an amazing woman, um, a very quiet, modest woman, but she really changed Judaism. And, and Judaism today is what it is because of her. 
the education that she provided for girls, that was just amazing. And um, she's a role model. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, I think we may have covered yep. most of everything here. Um, as far as I'm just looking through the questions, Judge Fryer, we uh, just are so grateful for you spending this evening with us. Very inspiring. You are very inspiring. Um, and I'll, I'll humbly say that, that, uh, that for many of us, you are, you are a role model. You are someone that, uh, that, that, that shares what can be, that, that, that really guides the way for what can be done when there's conviction, when there's faith. And when, when we're not afraid to, to be who we are, uh, it's just incredible to see what, what can be accomplished. Um, thank you, Judge Fryer, uh, for being here. Thank you all for joining. I will mention a quick, uh, before we, we, all, we all wrap up tonight, um, I do want to mention that next week, beginning Tuesday night and Thursday afternoon, we have our brand new series that's about anti-Semitism, which is essentially how to be strong and proud as a Jew amidst a world that sometimes demonizes us and criticizes us for being Jewish. If we want to know how to stand up with pride and with strength, please consider joining our new course. It's called Outsmarting Antisemitism. We know what antisemitism is. This is how to outsmart it and be strong and be proud of who we are in the face of, of challenge, both within and without. So, uh, so please join us. Check out the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash antisemitism. I want to wish everyone to um, an evening of blessing, a week of blessing, a month of blessing. And um, indeed, we should have many opportunities to get together, to, to study together, and to be inspired. Uh, Judge Fryer, thank you. And thank you all for joining. Laila Tov. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Take care, everybody.